autumn has officially arrived, and that means the days will grow shorter and shorter until the winter solstice on December 22nd. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. For a lot of people, less daylight means more sadness. Coming up, we'll talk with a doctor from the New York State Psychiatric Institute about seasonal affective disorder, in simpler terms, the winter blues. In the winter months, especially in the northern latitudes, when um, there's not as much sunlight and the morning light comes on much later, some people's uh, circadian rhythm gets thrown off. And for some vulnerable individuals, that can lead to... uh, wintertime depression or or just wintertime blues. But first, an early nightfall has its bright sides, especially for photographers. The darkness offers a lot of opportunities to capture stunning images. Laura Danley is a New York City-based photographer. She offers lessons on night photography. Laura, thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's good to be here. Once the sun goes down, a lot of photographers pack away their cameras and they go home. Are they missing something by not keeping their cameras out when night falls? Well, I definitely think so, but when night falls, you're probably going to want a tripod as well. Why is a tripod so important? Because um, a lot of times for there's not a lot of light around. Um, you can only open up your aperture so much, so you have to have really slow shutter speeds, and you're not really capable of hand-holding the camera for still that long. Honestly, Times Square is bright enough. You probably can handhold. Okay, a little vocabulary lesson for the amateurs out there, okay. including myself, I must admit. Aperture and shutter speed, please. Um, These are two. Yeah, sorry. I, ha- I, had, I had to throw those in. <laughs> the aperture is kind of like the size of the hole that's going to let light through the lens to hit either the film or the sensor. So that's one way light is coming in to your camera and the other is a shutter, which is, that's actually what you're tripping when you actually push the button to take the picture. So it's like a little curtain that's opening, closing at various speeds. And so it can be like a 500th of a second or it can be like three seconds. It can be like half an hour, depending on how things are. You mentioned Times Square as a location for nighttime photography because of the lights for astronomy buffs, for stargazers. Times Square is a nightmare because of all of the light pollution, but I guess it's a friend for photographers. Well, I mean, you know, people think of Times Square. It's a great icon for New York. So I think a lot of times when they think about night photography in New York, they're thinking Times Square with all those lights. It just happens to be that they're so bright and there's so many of them. You can use a tripod, but you don't necessarily need one. What other types of equipment do you need to do nighttime photography? You may want to, in addition to a tripod, have like some type of cable release or something like that, or you can just use the timer that's on the camera. But believe it or not, even just depressing the shutter to take the picture of the camera even if your camera's on a tripod it's going to like potentially give a little bit of shake so generally you don't want to be touching the shutter yourself what are among some of your favorite shots that you've taken at night i of course like times square and that area around like the new york public library is interesting as well Um, anything that has like Uh, you know, nicely lit buildings interests me. Um, I've also taken some interesting shots in San Francisco. 
at a place called the Sutro Baths. And so um, that's really nice because with long, slow shutter speeds, um, it's right on the water. And so it's like kind of a ruined bathhouse. And so the water goes uh, to like a really nice, soft image because of the slow shutter speeds. I understand that you teach classes on nighttime photography here in New York City. Tell us about that. Basically, what's happening is we are meeting by the New York Public Library, telling people about night photography, and um, there's a little handout I give them on starting exposure recommendations, because that's something about night photography that's a little bit more difficult as to like what exposure to start off on, and other little tips and tricks of night photography. Then um, they explore uh, the New York Public Library, um, the street in front of it, there's like some interesting uh, storefronts and things like that, taxi cabs going by and things like that. Um, I try to give them about 15 minutes. A lot of times people, you know, it's, it's really hard to get people back because there's so much interesting stuff um, to photograph. And then we end up in Times Square. But in between, like, I'll do something on light writing, which means that you can take a flashlight and uh, there's all sorts of things that you can do. Uh, you can just like wave the flashlight around and um, kind of into the frame of the photo and it makes like an interesting little design. You can write your name in lights that way. Um, you can also like walk into the photo for like about half the time that the exposure is and then you'll be kind of like a ghosted little image. You can also kind of like try to light certain objects with the flashlight if they're like too dark compared to, let's say like the foreground is too dark compared to the background. Um, you can kind of light it that way um, a little bit. So we do some like really fun stuff, like really interesting creative stuff. And how frequently do these classes meet? Um, right now I'm running them like once, uh, occasionally twice a month. And can people find out about them online? Uh, yes, all you need to do is go to photowalkabouts.com. Laura Danley, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Greater darkness doesn't only open up more opportunities for nighttime photographers. It can also benefit bird watchers. New York City is a great place to spot owls when the sun goes down. Wildlife photographer Deborah Allen leads bird walks in Central Park. She recently took me on a walk through the north end of the park in search of owls. In the summertime, the only owl we're likely to find is an eastern screech owl. Uh, there are several other owls that we can find in the winter, including great horned owl, northern saw-wet owl, and long-eared owl. Um, we occasionally see a barn owl also. And the eastern screech owl, what does that look like? Oh, it's quite small. Um, if you picture, it weighs less than half a pound, and it's about, oh, here I'm gesturing with my hands, it's about uh, maybe 8 inches, 10 inches tall. So it's, it's quite small, and it's got um, very strong streaks on the front, like gray and white streaks, so that it can blend in with the tree bark. Um, that's the gray morph owl. It also comes in a red morph, which is like a rust color with white streaks. When they're trying to blend in with the trees, they stand up really straight, and they have these little things called ear tufts, and the, the ear tufts stand up, and that helps them blend in with the tree trunks. Why is the eastern screech owl more abundant than the other owl species? There was a program that started back in 1998 called Project X uh, from the New York City Parks Department. And the idea was 
to reintroduce 10 species in the five burrows. So two species for each burrow. And the eastern screech owl was one of the species for Central Park. Um, the owls had bred in Central Park up until 1949. And then, uh, you know, they gradually disappeared. There was, um, I think, an owl uh, on the Christmas count in the 1950s sometime. But after that, there had not been any reports. So they decided it would be a good owl to reintroduce. It's got very, um, a very varied diet. Um, it'll eat earthworms, crayfish, fish, uh, rodents, small birds, moths. You know, it, it can survive on just about anything, and it's um, the owl that's most likely to nest in suburban areas. And tell me how we would go about looking for owls here in the park at night. We can go to places where we've seen the owls roosting before and see if they're there. That's one good thing to do. Um, and also, uh, sometimes the owls like to hunt with the aid of the street lights. So there are a lot of lamp posts around and um, the moths are attracted to those. So sometimes the owls will hunt near a lamp post. Now you also have with you owl calls, yes. right? To yes. try to bring them out? Yes, yes. Right now, uh, in August, early September, that time of year, early fall, the young birds that have been raised by their parents in the summer disperse. So we're more likely to get a response to a territorial call at this time because the, the resident owl is going to be like, uh-oh, <laughs> I hear another owl here. I better get over there and tell them, hey, this is my spot. Get out of here, you know? Go find your own spot. So in terms of defending their territory, you know, they're pretty fierce about that. What has been your most memorable night out in search of owls here in the city? Oh, when the owls were first released back in 1998, we were down in the Ramble um, near the upper lobe, and there's a little, um, at that time it was a wooden bridge that goes across. We saw the owls copulating. So, you know, we saw like the male owl and the female owl, and like, oh, look at that, they're making little owls. So that was pretty exciting. And then another time, um, in, in 2001, they had uh, young owls, and one of the birders got too close to one of the young owls, and the owl came and clipped him in the head. So that was kind of, well, I don't know if that was exciting exactly, but it was pretty funny. <laughs> Anyhow, the real action happens at night, of course. Describe where we are now. Are we here because this is a place that you're more likely to see owls? Well, I think actually we should walk over to the, what's called the dead road. That the goes, dead road. The dead road, yeah, isn't that charming? Um, it goes from the east drive over to the west drive. And uh, we've seen owls there quite a few times. What makes that a spot where you will likely be to find owls? The reason it's a good spot is that it's close to the lock. And the owls like to hunt along the lock. And you can stand up at the dead road, you know, in the light, and the owls can hear um, the owl call from the lock and come over um, to where you can see them easily. So that's basically the reason. Do you find that a lot of people are surprised that New York City is home to owls? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think people are surprised that there are birds in New York City. Besides um, pigeons. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember um, when I first started birding, um, you know, I, I was fascinated and, and I would like you know, go up to complete strangers and I'd, I'd be like, do you know what that is? That's a tufted titmouse. And they'd be like, okay, lady. <laughs> uh, who, a what? really nice, you know. <laughs> no, no. And, uh, 
so you know I had to I had to find an outlet for this you know so I started photographing the birds and like with the bird walks and everything so um, you need documentation yeah exactly <laughs> but we have like more um, than 200 species of birds that come through here in any given year um, the species list for the park as a whole over over the years is up way past 275 species now so you know this is basically a migration hotspot. Ooh, this looks like a good spot. Now you just stopped in your tracks and you yeah, said, said, this looks like a good spot. This looks like a good spot. Yeah, maybe I'll play the owl call. It's a little early, but you know, just see. It's just about getting dark now. I guess we probably have another, what, half hour or so before it's fully dark? Yeah, about that. Yeah, so, well, what the heck, couldn't hurt. So Deborah, that's the sound of the eastern screech owl? Yeah, it's kind of mesmerizing. Um, yeah, and um, what we're listening to, there's a couple of different calls on here. Um, the, the one that um, sounds like a little horse is a whinny call, and that one is used for uh, territorial defense. The other call is um, more like a courtship type call that might be used like, uh, let's say, you know, you're the owl and you've picked out a tree cavity that you might want to nest in, um, and you, you would use that other call as just kind of like a, a sort of a monotonous trill um, to, to say to your mate, well, what do you think about this tree cavity over here? So then are we sending conflicting messages right now with this call? Well, we are. <laughs> um, it's kind of funny, you know, like when they, um, when they put these calls on the recordings, they just throw them all on there. And the owl must be listening going, what's with that other owl? What? You know, first he's saying this, then he's saying that. I better go over there and check this out, you know. Um, you see that with a lot of the bird calls. Um, and in fact, that's, that's how you can tell that you're listening to a recording. Because a normal bird would never go through the repertoire that way. Um, you know, like you'll have, uh, you know, a, a dawn song, you know, that the bird would sing first thing in the morning to advertise its territory. Then you'll have like a little song that it would sing to its mate. And then you'll have an alarm call, one right after the other, over and over and over again. And it's kind of like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. With that all being said, yeah. we're playing this now, and this could potentially attract one of the owls yes. to us. Yes, 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 yes. Let's just walk over here a little bit. Yeah, they like to, um, to hunt in the lock. Uh, for obvious reasons. The thing that I'm um, a little bit concerned about is that it has been raining and um, you know if there, there's an owl right here he might just be sitting there going you know I'd just like to stay underneath these leaves and you know be dry for a while and you know maybe I'll go out and look for some food later or what's that crazy owl doing over there making all that sound you know should I even bother going over there so yeah it's, it's better if it's not um, wet out obviously. Um, but if we don't get a response over here, there are a couple other places that I'd like to try, um, you know, near, um, you know, where we've seen them roosting in the past. Yeah, it looks like it's dark enough now, actually, so that's good. I would imagine they have a pretty keen sense of hearing as well as eyesight. Oh, yes. Um, their, their eyesight is incredible, you know, and the, an interesting thing about owls is that um, as humans, um, when we want to look at something, we don't have to turn our head to look at it. We can just move our eyes. Um, but an owl, um, the way that its eyes are designed, they're actually like a disc. 
um, and that that's to like maximize the light gathering area that's available so uh, and their eyes also are huge compared to the size of your head it would be like if you had an eye that was like three inches wide in your head you know and so in order to fit that into their head it it, it can't move so it's flat right so they have to turn their head to one side or the other to look around and um, that's why they can turn their head almost 180 degrees around. So that's quite something to see also. Um, also one thing that's interesting about the hearing of an owl is that the position of their ears is offset. Like if you look at our ears, our ears are pretty much symmetrical um, on our head. Like they're at the same level, right? And owl's ears, one is a little bit higher and the other one is a little bit lower. And that helps them um, when they're listening for something to locate it and it um, helps them triangulate. So they'll like bob their head up and down a little bit and with the position of their ears they can tell like where in the grass the little mouse is running around. Well there's a lot of standing around in this looking for owls business. Always going to say a lot of hurry up and wait in your industry, yeah, huh? Yeah, basically. Um, but the payoff, I'm sure, is pretty big when oh, you do well, see what yeah, you're out looking if for. comes in, it's very exciting. Are baby owls called chicks? What are they called? Oh. Baby owls? Well, yeah, I call them owlets. Um, I, you know, they have some fancy names for falcons and hawks, but not so much for owls. Yeah. You can call them chicks when they're little. Are owls monogamous creatures? Um, yeah, basically they are. Um, you know, they'll have a mate, and... Um, you know, they'll, they'll stay with that, um, that other owl, um, you know, and they'll nest with them again the next year and the next year and the next year. And generally, um, the only time there's, there's really not like a divorce, um, like with humans, you know, um, they'll, they'll generally stay together until one of them dies. And then, you know, probably, um, fairly soon thereafter that owl will be replaced. So... You know, they're not too sentimental. <laughs> well, at least no one's come up to us and asked us if we've lost our minds yet. I was waiting for that, but it yeah. hasn't happened. <laughs> yeah. What do you say, Deborah? Do we stamp a to-be-continued on this owl I, watch? I think we better. <laughs> All right. All right, owl. I'll get you next time. <laughs> Deborah, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Oh, well... Sorry, I couldn't find an owl for you, but we tried. That's all you can do. Deborah Allen is a wildlife photographer. She leads bird walks in Central Park. More info at birdingbob.com. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. When struck with the idea to do a show to coincide with autumn and an earlier nightfall, we thought what better New York City neighborhood to spotlight than Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Ron Schweiger is the Brooklyn Borough historian. He joins us now on the phone to enlighten us about Sunset Park. Ron, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure, George. Let's start with the name of this neighborhood, Sunset Park. How did this Brooklyn neighborhood get that name? Well, uh, first of all, there's a big park in the neighborhood called Sunset Park, and it's if you go up the stairs and go up to the top of the hill, you are standing, uh, I believe, the second highest point in Brooklyn, geographically speaking, not on top of a building, of course. What does that park look out on? 
Well, it looks out onto the neighborhood, of course, and uh, to the west, you can watch the sunset. And that's how the uh, park got its name in the neighborhood. Uh, that was probably before a lot of the big, taller buildings were built. How has the neighborhood changed demographically over the years? Well, it's changed quite dramatically, in fact. Yeah, I mean, if we go back to the um, 19th century, the population was uh, Irish, Polish, Italian, uh, a lot of Norwegian. You had a lot of Scandinavian. And the reason for this was you had the waterfront there. And in the waterfront, you had a, a tremendous amount of shipping. In fact, you had about 75% of uh, American shipping was done out of Sunset Park in Brooklyn. That ended following World War II, partly because of Robert Moses, and he built the highway system, and, and you had the white flight, and people were leaving Brooklyn out to the suburbs. And that's when the neighborhood really started to change dramatically. You mentioned and, Robert Moses, so the Gowanus Expressway had oh, a yes. big impact on the neighborhood. The Gowanus Expressway uh, divided the community. I mean, it, it, it put a, a slice right through the heart of the community, and um, that really decimated the area. And uh, today, before, not, not today, but starting in the 1970s, let's say, you had a big influx of Hispanics moving into the area uh, from Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Mexico. So a large part of Fifth Avenue in Sunset Park is today a very large Hispanic area. But also you have, starting in the 19, late 70s, but well into the 1980s and 90s, and even now along 8th Avenue between the 40s and the 60s, the streets in the 40s and the 60s, you have a big Asian population, mostly Chinese, where you have wonderful rest, Chinese restaurants and uh, um, fruit and vegetable markets, fish markets. I mean, it is a vibrant, vibrant community. Yeah, it's my understanding that there are more Chinese people in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, than there are in Manhattan's Chinatown these days. It's very likely. Um, I think the largest Chinese population or Asian population, I believe, might be in Flushing in Queens. But Brooklyn's Sunset Park is really uh, getting there, and it might even overtake Flushing uh, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, and like I said, it's a, a very vibrant community, very, very few vacant storefronts on the commercial strips, which would be like Fifth Avenue, 8th Avenue, and so on. Sunset Park is also home to the Jackie Gleason Bus Depot. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> now, of course, those people uh, who are too young who don't know um, the TV series back in the 50s and maybe even the early 60s of The Honeymooners, Jackie Gleason played Ralph Cramden. And by the way, here's a pretty good trivia question that some people may not even be aware of. The neighborhood in The Honeymooners on the TV show the neighborhood that that show takes place in is Bensonhurst in Brooklyn. But the street that the Cramdens lived on in the show was Chauncey Street, which is not in Bensonhurst. It's actually in Bed-Stuy and Bushwick. Hmm. Why? Because that's the street that Jackie Gleason grew up on when he was growing up in Brooklyn. Ha, huh, that is a great piece of trivia. Yes. <laughs> Are you aware of any landmark structures in Sunset Park, Brooklyn? Well, I know we have some very old churches you have St. Michael's Church on 4th Avenue, which stands out. I mean, you can see it from miles away. And um, I'm not sure of the names of some of the others, 
but there are uh, numerous churches all along uh, 4th Avenue um, in Sunset Park, both Hispanic. And, of course, you have um, the Chinese population also with their own uh, houses of worship. Okay. Ron, anything else about Sunset Park that you think we should know about that's particularly interesting? Well, I always tell people, uh, when I do my walking tours around uh, various neighborhoods in Brooklyn, I always tell people to be a tourist in your own borough, and especially here in Brooklyn. Get on a bus, get on the subway, go a few stops, three, four, five stops, get off, walk around, and enjoy the various ethnic and religious diversity of this wonderful borough. And as the signs say that Borough President Marty Markowitz put up as we uh, enter Brooklyn from wherever you're coming from, uh, it says, Welcome to Brooklyn, home to everyone from everywhere. And it is so true here in Brooklyn. Ron, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, George. Ron Schweiger is the Brooklyn Borough Historian. Sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset. As we heard this morning, an early nightfall can lead to a lot of joy, particularly for photographers and bird watchers. But for some people, the extended darkness can spark a whole lot of sadness. Joining us now is Dr. Niles Drake with the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Doctor, thanks for taking the time out for us. Thanks for having me. Well, here we are. The days are growing shorter, meaning less daylight, which could affect people's outlook on life, right? That's right. When the daylight gets shorter, uh, our circadian rhythms uh, and some people can be disturbed, leading to mood problems. Why is that? What happens inside our bodies? Well, basically, we have an internal clock generated by our brain to kind of regulate our sleep, wake, mood, cognition in relation to the uh, the timing of the, the solar day. And uh, that clock requires essentially daily resetting, and that resetting uh, happens primarily through morning light exposure. But in the winter months, especially in the northern latitudes, when um, there's not as much sunlight and uh, morning light comes on much later, some people's uh, circadian rhythm gets thrown off. And for some vulnerable individuals, that can lead to... Uh, wintertime depression or, or just wintertime blues. And I guess the hard definition there is seasonal affective disorder? Right, that's right. It's seasonal affective disorder. And that um, applies to recurrent mood symptoms that happen. Usually when we talk about it, we're talking about wintertime depression. There's also a spring and summer variation. But seasonal affective disorder is the depressive syndrome that happens on a recurrent basis for some individuals in uh, the winter months is what we'll be talking about today. What are among the primary symptoms of seasonal affective disorder? Uh, so seasonal affective disorder can look a lot like major depression. It can include all the symptoms of major depression, but there are some things that are particular, um, particularly specific to seasonal affective disorder. They're what we call the neurovegetative signs of depression. So these are things affecting your energy, sleep, and appetite. Usually, the, the earliest symptoms of seasonal affective disorder episodes are increased sleeping and decreased daytime energy. Often, these are the most prominent symptoms, even more prominent than the mood symptoms, or they at least precede them by, by several weeks or to months. But also, the appetite is, is affected. People tend to eat more. Particularly, they crave carbohydrates, so sweets and starches. The, the picture is kind of one of hibernation, where there's increased calorie intake and, and decreased activity, but it can also have all of the symptoms of major depression, so sad, tearful mood, hopelessness, worthlessness, guilt, even thoughts about life not being worth living or, or suicidal thoughts. 
Is it difficult to diagnose because of that? It's not particularly hard to diagnose. I think what uh, leads to being undertreated in general is that people don't come for help. How do you treat seasonal affective disorder? Well, it, it responds to the same treatments as, as standard depression, which is antidepressant and psychotherapy. However, um, the, the treatment of choice for seasonal affective disorder is actually light therapy because of the, uh, the circadian rhythm disturbance owing to the shorter daytime hours. Light therapy uses uh, essentially artificial sunlight generated by uh, special lamps uh, to reset the circadian clock and correct the underlying problem. Are certain people more susceptible to seasonal affective disorder than others? Definitely. Um, it does tend to run in families, although we certainly haven't identified the genetic cause. But it's more common in women, about 60%, maybe a little more common in women. It happens more also in young people. So people from the ages of about 16 to 24 is when it starts, although it can certainly persist well into middle age. All right, Dr. Drake, anything else you'd like to add? Well, uh, you know, there's a number of um, good resources out there about seasonal affective disorder. You can Google it, and the, the first thing that comes up is a, a decent and concise article put out by a government source about it. If you want to take a test uh, to check whether or not you have seasonal affective disorder, I recommend you go to CET.org. That's the Center for Environmental Therapeutics, and they're a trusted site for information on, uh, on the topic. And there's a self-test there where you can um, sort of assess yourself for seasonal affective disorder. All right, doctor, thanks so much for your time. Absolutely, thank you for having me. Dr. Niles Drake is with the New York State Psychiatric Institute. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can listen to past editions of the show at wfuv.org cityscape. You'll find us on Facebook and Twitter under WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to senior producer, Marlene Chin. Have a great weekend.